Welcome to Meet the Professors. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. As with other programs in this series, our format is simple. Medical oncologists in practice present real cases to our clinical investigator faculty. For this program, the patients have either colon or rectal cancer, and our brave faculty includes Drs. Dan Haller, Charlie Fuchs, Steve Curley, and Neil Maripol. The first case was presented to Drs. Haller and Fuchs by Dr. Phil Glynn. This patient is a 71-year-old female who had originally presented with difficulties of weakness and anemia. She was seen by a primary care physician and subsequently seen in GI and surgical consultation. She had undergone a colonoscopy. She had a large cecal lesion. She had a CT scan, which was obtained demonstrating innumerable hepatic lesions involving the right and left as well as caudate lobe. These lesions measured anywhere from four to six centimeters in greatest dimension, and a number of them were coalescing. At the time of her preoperative laboratory assessment, she was found to have a CEA of 412. I saw her shortly postoperatively, and she was rather frail, having some difficulty recovering from surgery. Just prior to the start of chemotherapy, I did obtain a CEA, which had risen to 474. Her LDH at that time was 2,406. The patient received treatment with Fulfox and subsequently Fulfox and Avastin. I was very concerned about her clinical status, and prior to the start of the second cycle, I obtained a repeat laboratory assessment and her CEA at that time was 924. Can you talk a little bit more about the woman, what her living situation was and lifestyle? She and her husband had been very successful in a local business, and she had a very supportive family. She had no other big medical conditions, and she was otherwise, had been active up until about three or four months prior to this and had kind of put off going in for a workup. So she had been active, out doing things? and Absolutely, then... yeah. Dan? I was just going to ask, at the time you started treatment, what would you call her ECOG performance status? An unsteady two. An unsteady two. And when you say second cycle, you mean the second treatment with Fulfox? The second round of Fulfox, yeah. Her first Fulfox treatment had not included Avastin, and then I added in Avastin with the second Fulfox treatment. Just a cautionary note, we've published this in the JCO as a letter to the editor, but it's been seen, and I've seen it in my practice, is some of my best responses have been in patients with CEA bumped and one assumes that it's due to release of CEA. So you see people go up very strikingly, and so I stopped getting them after the first cycle because everyone would spaz out when they saw this increase. So just be careful. It's been published, and I've seen it. Charlie, have you seen that? I can't say I've seen it often. It depends how often you get CEAs, obviously, and how often your patients are interested in them. Well, we thought we were going to trick you with this one, but I guess you read your own journal, huh? (laughs) Occasionally, I read my own journal. And just another point is that One of the things that we're grappling with, and you're going to meet with Neil Maripol a little bit later, I believe, one of the issues is when you're talking about the PS2 patients, are they twos going up to ones or twos going down to threes, or are you a drug seeking a PS2 patient or a high LDH that one group of patients, the target population that will enrich your results? One issue is are they a two due to underlying morbidities or are they a two due to their disease, in which case it becomes a self-filling prophecy is that the nicer you are to them, if they're twos because of their disease, the less likely you are ever to see benefit. So, In terms of differentiating the surge, is the LDH helpful? Could you tell them what the LDH was? As soon as she walked into the office, I wished I hadn't ordered the CEA because I was going to ignore it. And her LDH came back at 611 from 2,400. I can't comment on LDH. I suspect it could do the same. We don't have LDH in our panel anymore. We have to order it separately. And since I rarely order it outside of trials, unless some drug gets approved because of an LDH, I don't look at it. But it could be true. 
Charlie, any other thoughts at this point? I was wondering about the decision process to do surgery because if she was sort of a borderline ECOG performance status, would you consider maybe just going straight ahead to systemic therapy? I saw her postoperatively. I think that that was a question worth asking, but I'm not sure whether her deteriorating performance status was sequelae of surgery and inability to recover because she just didn't have a lot of functional reserve. And in fact, I guess the NSABB has a trial looking at chemotherapy up front for patients presenting with metastatic disease. And I guess the key there is how much local symptomatology they have from the primary. Can you wait? Any thoughts about that trial, Charlie? It's a great idea to really ask whether we should be doing these surgeries. And with a right-sided lesion, presumably it's less likely that they're going to obstruct. The issue, particularly with a sequel lesion, is whether they're going to have difficulties with anemia and bleeding. But hopefully you could keep up with it. I know a number of surgeons thought leaders in surgery are thinking that maybe we shouldn't be sending these patients to surgery. Charlie, would the presence of the primary deter you at all from using bevacizumab? I know that certainly the availability of bevacizumab has made some question whether that's now another reason to pull the primary out, but do we really know that the presence of the primary actually predicts perforation? And do we know what the response rate is to systemic therapy to a primary lesion? Dan, what's your experience in your own practice? Usually the primaries respond better than the metastases. And one patient I recently had who entered her fourth year of treatment for metastatic disease was on the pivotal trial of oxaliplatin second line and still going strong, said, what about my primary tumor? Shouldn't we be looking at it? And now I actually have at the front of the chart, primary is in place, just like an allergy note, to remember that it's there. And when we sent a colonoscopist in, they couldn't find the primary. They thought they saw a scarred area, but primaries are usually most responsive. No, I would agree. And Charlie, in breast cancer, if we do have a patient who has a primary in place in metastatic disease, if the primary is not causing a local problem, bleeding, et cetera, we use it as an indicator lesion. Do you think that would apply with colorectal cancer, assuming the primary wasn't causing a local problem? Well, I think it's a little harder, obviously, to make an indicator lesion because we don't want to routinely do colonoscopy. But I agree with Dan that I think the primaries respond well. And in fact, with the, you know, now that we're out of the 5-FU era, where maybe we needed to worry about the fact that in a short amount of time, the primary would be problematic. I think it's less likely now. Yeah, I was thinking more along the lines of it's just one of the lesions there that you need to take into consideration. Dan? We may come back to this, and I'm sure we will. But just to go back to the initial presentation, and this is somewhat tongue-in-cheek, is that the presentation with innumerable liver metastases, it reminds me of one of my fellows presenting a patient not too long ago, and they made the mistake of not looking at the films and only reading the outside radiology report that said innumerable liver metastases. So I said, can we see them? Because with more and more data coming from bigger studies showing that even up to six is a legitimate number to consider for resection, we throw up the scans and there turned out to be three METs in the liver, which led me to conclude that the radiology couldn't count past two. That made it innumerable. So I think we now have to be more precise now that we have more interventions, and we'll get to this about what happens to the ones that disappear. So what's innumerable at University of Pennsylvania? For our surgeons? Well, you can talk to Steve Curley later. Innumerable is the number that I send to Steve at MD Anderson. Five or six, but just like in real estate, location is equally important. Hopefully we'll be able to, with our new audio series for surgeons targeting colorectal cancer, alert surgeons that maybe a patient like this ought to see a medical oncologist before a decision for surgery is made so we can consider some of these things. But Dr. Glenn, can you continue on with the case? So the patient has now completed three full cycles of therapy. Her CEA is 93. Her LDH is normalized. Her ECOG status has gone from 2 to 0. She just looks terrific. How's she done on the full Fox Avastin? Absolutely no problem so far. She's tolerated 
beautifully. Any neuropathy or cold intolerance? Minimal. Nothing that would stop her from continuing. What are your thoughts moving forward? Well, I haven't repeated her CAT scan as of yet. I probably will at least get through her fourth cycle and perhaps take a look at it and then see what has happened to her liver lesions. I did review the CAT scan, and it really looks very impressive, not only the number but the size, and she has all lobes of her liver involved. And so I'm not so sure if we're going to get to specific radiofrequency ablation. I can't imagine she's going to be a surgical candidate. Any other thoughts, Dan? Yeah, a couple. So let's say you do a CT scan after six cycles. Two thoughts. One has to do with that. And the radiologist says, now we only see three lesions, and the rest are invisible. The one big question I think got answered at ASCO this year was, when you see a radiographic complete response and those people are resected, how often do you find viable tumor? The answer is virtually always. So we're not sterilizing or curing with chemotherapy except in rare circumstances. So even if she looks resectable, your decision to resect is more based on her pretreatment scans than on what you get later, although it's very nice to have a response. The second is, if she's out at six cycles, she has no neuropathy, and she looks and feels wonderful, do you believe in the Optimox trial? Would you drop out oxaliplatin before you develop neuropathy and have treatment failure, or do you continue in success with something else, like 5-FU, Leucovorin, Bevacizumab? What would you generally do? What are you thinking? I've been optimoxing more, if I can turn it into a verb. I really think that reserving a successful therapy for future use, because I have a lot of patients now that are recycling back, that was the intent in the Optimox trial, and it didn't get accomplished in everyone to have a planned reintroduction. My intent is not to use a drug, then have someone with a persistent grade 2 neuropathy because the patient and I overshot, have the patient go through a renotecan cetuximab, and then say, you know, oxaliplatin really worked amazingly well, but I can't give it to the 72-year-old lady. If she falls at home and breaks a hip at age 72, that's a real big problem beyond her colon cancer. Bill, did you have a thought? I just had one question to Dr. Holler. I mean, one choice you have when you have someone on full foxavastin is to drop off the oxaliplatin. Another option you have at times is to give a patient a rest and a break, and I was just wondering how you decide between the two. It's a toughie. I present all three options to patients. One is to go to traditional endpoints, which is time to treatment failure, which with oxaliplatin will always be neuropathy or progression of tumor, but more often neuropathy than progression. One is stopping completely. That's actually the point of a trial currently ongoing in Great Britain called the COIN trial, where people get six cycles of induction, falfoxetuximab, and then no treatment. There's only been one no-treatment vacation study done, but it was done with rather limp 5-FU methotrexate leucovorin treatment, and the time that people were able to stay off until they were retreated, which usually was based on radiographic progression, was only about three to four months. In my heart, I think maintenance is better than a clean vacation that is no treatment at all. There are no studies, unfortunately, comparing all three. There's a biologic-only vacation in the current Optimox 3 or DREAM trial where people either stay on Bevacizumab with or without Erlotinib and no chemotherapy or the COIN trial with no maintenance therapy, but the two are not in the same trial, unfortunately. But I usually favor dropping the oxali voluntarily, staying on 5-FU Bevacizumab, but in a patient who's really buckling and saying, unless you can tell me that getting more treatment, I want to be like a lung cancer patient and get six cycles and out and just stay off treatment, I'll be happy to do that. And I monitor them exactly as if they were on treatment because I think being a doc for these patients is more than just giving treatment. You also have to follow them and keep them out of trouble. Although Optimox, too, certainly in a small cohort looks Correct. at stopping outright. Yes. Unfortunately, they didn't finish that study. It would right. have been nice. 
Charlie, and prostate cancer is a little bit like intermittent androgen deprivation, and, and the urologists say that it's a little bit challenging psychologically to have the patient stop therapy. It makes them very nervous. What's your experience been, Charlie, with that? Well, I agree with what Dan said, which is you really have to sit down with the patient and go over the various options. And at least at our center, there's certainly a reasonable proportion who want to stick with the traditional endpoint of continuing until disease progression, though I certainly encourage them that we're now seeing data to suggest that we don't need to do that, and particularly with oxaliplatin, that may be ultimately detrimental. And I think over time, patients accept it, even when they don't at first, but it may take the development of neuropathy for those folks who want to stick with traditional endpoints. And Dan, if you wait for sort of the earliest signs of neuropathy, how likely is it that it's not going to be a major problem? I think it depends where your cut point is. It's such a subjective phenomenon. We actually asked Sanofi Aventis to do a gender toxicity correlation, and it turns out that men have higher rates of neurotoxicity. Hmm. And the likeliest thing is not biologic, it's men's reticence to actually tell their doctor the truth. Because I'll have patients and I'll say, do you have trouble doing anything? Oh, no. And their wife says, gee, but why did I have to button your shirt this morning? So I think we do overshoot, and I'm particularly cautious about that in the adjuvant setting, where people are going to be around for a long time. Well, speaking of oxaliplatin and neuropathy, Dr. Weinstein has a case that I think is interesting in that regard. 